Howdy, everybody, and welcome to another BP Movie Journal, the show we do where we talk about the stuff we've seen since the last time we did one of these. I'm David Bax. I'm David. It's, well, we, we just say first names. I'm Tyler Smith. Oh, no. <laughs> you blew it. Uh, you so. blew it. And you blew it. Um, Who is it? Fatum is the one that does that really well, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> and I found, actually, that this is obviously not a visual medium here, but I've when I do when I do the, for those who don't know the you blew it is uh, De Niro in Copland yes and I've taken on Fatum's uh, gesturing because he okay. does like a sweeping like yeah. one arm like you blew it <laughs> which is not actually what De Niro does is no. the two almost like I wish I had shoehorn hands <laughs> from Seinfeld he goes you blew it um, just jutting his two uh, hands forward uh, so everyone uh, knows what that was and what I'm doing while I do it. Um, and I feel like if you worked at a video store that played like preview tapes, like I did, oh, I both video update and blockbuster. Oh, right. I did because I did for a time work at not video update, but movie gallery, which we both worked at. I don't think I remember that. Didn't it was, you worked at a movie gallery. Movie gallery bought it, but then had not turned it into a movie oh, gallery okay. while I was still See, there. That's what happened. I worked at an independent video store in St. Louis, outside of St. Louis, in Valley Park, yeah. Missouri, uh, called Star Video. Sure. And then movie gallery bought it, and I think I think so. For that short time, I did have those little, but this was post Copland. Yeah. See, this we had like just these VHS tapes uh-huh. that. We had like 15 of them and just like, Hey, here are the best movies of 1987, I guess. <laughs> and so we had one from like 96, which I think is when Copland came out 96 or 97. And so like that would play just on a loop. And the reason that I would always put that one in is because I think it was 97 because they showed so many like apostle sweet hereafter right. la confidential like wag the dog movies i loved and so but then what's the, what's the, what's the full line i gave you a chance to i be gave a, you a chance to be a cop and you oh, blew cop. it yeah, yeah so yeah. uh yes that is all right you you can be be familiar with that line and not have seen the film at all You're right uh yeah. it is the line of the trailer all right oh being so. right is not a bulletproof vest freddie that's also a big line in the Ray Liotta says that. Okay, um, sorry, we can move on. Yeah, well, let's move on by getting started. What did right. you watch? All right, so uh, first I watched a documentary called Haunters, directed by John Schnitzer, I believe. Uh, this was on Sarah's uh, top 10 list top of 10 2017. 2017. Yeah. And so much of it, I watched it with Jen, uh, so much of it seemed reminiscent of The American Scream, a documentary that you and I both adore. And that has become something of a tradition for you right Don't yes you, you every, watch the american scream every halloween time that's right yeah um i've only seen it the once but yeah good movie yeah oh and it's uh, haunters is also a very good movie but we are not going to be watching it again because it just it it deals with like home haunters but also this this concept of like the extreme haunted house or extreme scares where like that thing blackout that that you've heard about where people go through completely by themselves they sign a waiver they can be physically touched not hurt but they can be restrained oh there's there are rooms where like a completely naked man chases you uh like it's rough stuff and you have a safe word and if you say that safe word like lights come on and you leave 
That's how it works. Um, but you go in one at a time. And so, and there are the naked guys like, please don't say the safe word. (laughs) I I don't need the harsh fluorescence to kick on. Just like, Oh, you kidding me? Like I really, really, uh, my birthday was last week and I just really gorged myself. So, um, so, so that, but blackout is like a professional thing. So one of the people, not unlike American scream, we follow a, a few people here and there and, and what they've been doing. And there's one guy who I believe is down in San Diego or right around there. And he does a home version of that extreme thing. And there's a huge waiting list. People come from other countries to go through it. Wow. Um, but it is so thoroughly unpre- unpleasant to watch. Hmm. And, and, oh, no safe word. Yeah. Hmm. Which well, I'm I think, sure we'll all be reading about this guy on the news. Oh, there point. are, he, they show you, there are a lot of Facebook pages set up against this guy. Uh, huh. And somebody had a heart attack. The person turned out fine, I guess. Uh, But yeah. And so, but what's interesting is this guy's life. There are just so many facets to it. Like, and there's a wonderful little sequence where he reveals that what he does to make a living is he is a wedding singer. So it cuts to him like doing this, not loungy, but just being this cheesy wedding singer. He's singing, you know, uh, the Elvis song, like can't help falling in love with Mm -hmm. you. So he's like singing and he's very, he has a very good voice. Mm -hmm. And then it like cuts. So it cuts back and forth between that and people just screaming, (laughs) uh, their lungs out in his haunt. And so there's there it's interesting um but there's a level of obsession with him and a few of the other people involved that it is not a fault of the film this is the movie they're making but I'm I unfortunately saw American Scream first which I think actually has uh I think that's a film with tremendous affection for its subjects. Uh, whereas this one, it doesn't, con- I don't think it condemns its subjects, but I think it stays at a distance and I think it's much more interested in their obsession than them. Uh, I might be wrong about that, but it's, uh, it definitely would make an interesting double feature to watch both of them. Uh, and just, you get a very good idea of what it is to do this yeah. and how, how big of a sacrifice some people wind up making. But, uh, so yeah, I think I'm, I'm glad that I watched it. It was, it was very interesting, but as Jen said, like she was made very uncomfortable by it and I was as well. It's not a movie I'm going to be returning to. All right. Uh, I checked out the new Stanley Tucci joint. Okay. The new Tucci directorial joint. The Tucci. Yeah. Um, and I've liked, uh, some of the films that he's directed in the past. Um, I think the last one I saw was Joe Gould's Secret, which I remember liking. Oh, that was a long time ago. Um, that's the last one I saw. I think he's only done one since then. Okay. This is his first movie in like 10 years as a director. It's called Final Portrait. Okay. Um, and unfortunately, I was not uh, too impressed by it. Uh, I guess it's based on a somewhat true story of um, uh, a, I guess, Italian, Swiss Italian artist, sculptor named Giacometti, who lived and worked in Paris in the 1960s. Um, and he, he painted and did sculptures and, um, and then, a, a, an American novelist played by army hand, army hammer who sat for him for a portrait. Mm-hmm. 
and the premise is that they like meet or whatever and Armie Hammer's and, and Giacometti is like I'd love for you to sit for me with me for a portrait and he's like I'd love to but I'm leaving in two days and Jack and me is like oh that's fine well it's plenty of time and then like the joke of the movie is that he keeps having to move his flight back and he ends up being there like three weeks sitting there <laughs> for this portrait uh, every day um, and so you've got Jeffrey Rush as Giacometti Army yeah. Hammer you've got uh, Tony Shalhoub playing uh, Giacometti's I guess brother slash manager slash art dealer slash assistant like he's sort of just around a lot yeah um that's a very common character yeah the brother who is like a supporting character and is often just exasperated like yeah uh a thousand clowns martin balsam and then uh Mr. Saturday night, David Pamer, uh, and then Tony Shalhoub in this. And there are other examples. Like there is just something about the, the poor brother, uh, who just, he's trying to work with this eccentric genius, but like, Oh, so difficult. Um, you've also got the actress, uh, I'm going to say, I'm going to say an American version of her name, Clemens Posey, Mm. but I think it's probably Clemence Posey or something like that. Um, uh, she plays a, muse of Giacometti's who is also a prostitute and uh there's some I guess friction between Giacometti and his wife because this sure. prostitute is always around um but overall it just seems uh, it's just Stanley Tucci's made things like the imposters that was like a throwback yeah. like a screwball like uh, vaudevillian, you know, it was very lively comedy. Yeah. And this is, I think nominally a comedy. Um, it's a nominal comedy. It's a nominee. Um, that is mostly just very drab and inert and feels much longer than it's, uh, 90 minutes. Um, and also this is maybe something I would love to do an episode on at some point, maybe with a, a guest, uh, critic, um, someone I have in mind, we'll talk about it. Um, which is, you know, movies that are clearly intended to comment on the current culture thing or movies sure. that because of the cultural climate in which you're seeing them change your opinion. I feel yeah. like, and is it fair, I guess is the, the second thing, because that's kind of how I felt about this. Like, I don't think, um, Stanley Tucci set out to make, uh, an apologia for the difficult male artiste. Sure. But, it is a weird time to be seeing a movie like that, hmm. you know, and give it, including, you know, sexual misconduct and stuff, all this stuff that's going yeah. on in, in the movie and is going on in real life. It, it hit a sour note for me. And I'm wondering like, how fair is that? Um, and I think there is fairness to it, but, um, maybe it's, uh, like, I honestly think it's the kind of thing that would have bothered me at any point, yeah. but maybe it's sticking out like a sore thumb now. Because sure. Of what's going on. Sure. Uh, anyway, it would be an interesting episode to do at some point. And I think when it comes right down to it, like it comes out not long after Phantom Thread, which also has, you know, but uh, comments on it, uh, you know, and actually yeah. um, upends it. If you if you stick with it, if you're not Jennifer Lawrence, and you turn it off uh, 40 minutes. in. <laughs> oh, she said it was like faster than that. Right. No, I, did, it was I only- didn't listen to the whole thing. But uh, you know what? I I saw someone else say like after her 
like break up with Darren Aronofsky, it might have just been a raw nerve. So what wouldn't be? <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> so uh, yeah, I guess I don't blame Jennifer Lawrence too much. I feel like I have a hard time watching movies just because I know him. No, no, of <laughs> no, him. Of him, yeah. Pardon me. Um, okay, so next. Uh, three of my five movies or films you have seen. And I think it's because in okay. theaters right now, there are only a handful of movies I'm interested in. Okay. So uh, you saw death wish. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, three times. <laughs> um, so, uh, <laughs> uh, I saw Nash Edgerton's gringo. Oh, you did. I did. You're one of the few. Yes. Um, uh, although my theater was, I'd say half full, oh, which good. on a weeknight is rare. Yeah. Um, I wanted to like it. I really did. And there are things I like about it. I think, you know, you've, you've, you hit the nail on the head. I mean, it's very nineties, mm-hmm. uh, in it's, in its story in the character types. Um, and when you described it to me, like the first thing I thought of was like, Oh, it's, it seems very, you know, snatch ish, but that's what you said. But then Elmore Leonard is what it reminded mm-hmm. me of. Uh, and it definitely seems like that as well. Here's the issue. And I don't like speaking in these terms. It's 15 minutes too long. It is. I found it to be incredibly sluggish. Really? Like I wanted it to move fast, but there are scenes that just go on and on. That scene with Charlize Theron and Alan Ruck. I like both of them and I think she's doing good work, but I'm like, man, like, but isn't that scene like cross edited with other things going on at the same time? I think it cuts to one other thing. I think that scene is split in half, basically. Okay. But even within that, uh, even in those in those two things, like, it slows things... I feel like he doesn't have much of a sense of pacing. Like, he slows things down right when they should be amping up, or things will be amping up in one scene, and then it'll cut to another scene of people sitting mm-hmm. and talking. And I okay. like the dialogue, and I like... It's a great cast. Yeah. Um, and I really think that it's a, an, a very workable premise. Um, but I feel like it just needed to be a little bit tighter uh, to work as a comedy. And I know it's not a pure comedy. It's like an action comedy, whatever you yeah. want to call it. Uh, but I feel like, well, action movies should be tight as well. And so, you know, I look at those scenes with like Charlotte Copley, who I think injects some really some much needed life into the film. Um, and it's not that I it's not that I straight up disliked the movie. I just thought like all the elements are there. I just think they needed to be mixed together a little bit differently to work for me. All right. Um, yeah, I definitely thought it was funnier than you did. I, uh, I see what you're saying about some of the, like the, cause Charlize Theron is doing sort of her cold as ice, like kind of what she was doing in atomic blonde, like okay. a very deliberate type of, uh, yeah. delivery and stuff like that. I get that, uh, how that, clashes especially with david Oyelowo's performance which is so big uh, yeah. but in a great a great way yeah. honestly like uh david Oyelowo and charlotte copley are like the comedy duo we never knew we needed yeah and they're, they're the duo we we need now <laughs> sure. um and i will say and the, that's the other thing is like we really didn't need amanda seafried and harry treadway like at all anytime it cuts to them not that they're bad but anytime it cuts to them they don't they're not involved enough for me to I see, I, I see, see that they're necessary. Um, the, I mean, I think the brief relationship between, uh, I don't think anyone can hear the, if you can hear the car alarm, there's nothing we can do about it unless it's your car. Uh, <laughs> it's no, it isn't. Um, there we go. It's gone. There we go. Um, the brief, I think friendship, um, or, or the brief scenes between David Yellow and Amanda Seafried are, I think, 
important for his character development. Right. Because he, I think, um, he is becoming at that point, incredibly pessimistic. Yeah. And she sort of gives him hope with her, um, maybe naively optimistic viewpoint and they kind of meet somewhere yeah. in the middle. I, so I think, I think it's worth it. Um, and I just like though. I like both of them, Harry Treadway and Amanda Seyfried. I think yeah. They're, uh, I've been, a, I've been an Amanda Seyfried fan forever. I think honestly, I think they needed to be in it more or less. Like they're in it okay. just enough for it's like, well, I need, I want more development from them or because they're not developed enough to be vital. Uh, and I feel like, especially to the story and movies like this, characters are important. Relationships are important, but the, the, the story, the complex story is also very important. Yeah. No, I see, and I also see what you're saying because there is a bit of a missed opportunity plot wise near the end where David Yellowo and Harry Treadaway end up in the same place and but n- never nothing comes of it. Yeah. 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 Yeah, that's interesting. Um, that could have been something. All right, moving on. Now, first, a little, uh, not a disclaimer, but I'm just sort of uh, uh, a comment on something you're going to hear a lot of and see a lot of on the website. Uh, I'm calling it home video spring cleaning. Okay. You're, you're going to be seeing um, a uh, catch-up on home video reviews uh, from recent months, um, which is, I think, then going to... If we do it right, you and I and Scott are going to talk about this um, at, at our next uh, brunch meeting, mm-hmm. uh, which is something we do from time to time. Uh, more consistent home video reviews on the website yeah. going forward. But for now, you're going to hear a lot of home video, me catching up on things that have come out uh, in the past six months or so on home video. So I watched um, uh, the, the earliest hitchcock film i've ever seen 1927's the lodger have you seen i have seen it in my in my hitchcock class i liked it a lot um yeah it's really really good um uh, it's uh the story of uh, there's a serial killer i guess in london killing blonde young blonde women every tuesday night yeah um and there's a uh a family that has a room in their home that they uh that they let room to let Mm -hmm. um uh, no word on the price on that. No, it's, uh, it's not 50 cents. It's, uh, uh, which is from the King of the road song. Oh, okay. Um, it's, uh, two pounds, 10 a week is what we, uh, <laughs> what we eventually find out. I don't know why I remember that. Old time uh, Brits. I love them. Yeah. Um, uh, anyway, they, they, they have a daughter who is the exact age and hair color of all these victims. You know, she's a prime, potential victim yeah so they they figured this is the best time to let this uh shifty ass not at all suspicious crispin glover looking motherfucker <laughs> yeah. into their home um and so uh but but her suitor who's a real uh jackass real mm-hmm. full of himself real puffed up uh guy is uh the lead detective or investigator i guess would be no. the more uh correct british term on the uh or inspector is that inspector yeah. inspector is what i'm looking for um on the on the case um, uh, and so it becomes a love triangle between Daisy, the daughter, mm-hmm. this, uh, uh, blowhard, uh, in- inspector mm-hmm. and the potential serial killer yeah. in which by the end of the movie, you're kind of rooting for the guy who might also be a murderer. And I think that's, he's very charming. Uh, it's wonderfully perverse in a way. I think that's that there's, there's so much Hitchcock in it. Um, yeah, that, that I, I, I kind of didn't, 
um, expect to see so much of him, not fully formed, but so much of uh, his dark sense of humor. Um, his there's great suspense. There's um, you know there's a a scene in in the movie that is the kind of scene you and I and moviegoers see ten times a year at least, mm-hmm. which is someone suspicious of another person. That person has left their quarters. I'm going to go rifle through their stuff. See if I can find something. Yeah. It's like, uh Oh, the guy's coming home earlier than yeah. you thought he's coming. He's walking up the street. He's at the door. He's at the, the stairs. Like, uh, by the way, that, that still gets me. Like it always, it's <laughs> yeah. still, stre- it, it could be in the most cliche movie and it still stresses me out. Yeah. Uh, and here in 1927, when it probably wasn't as common, maybe, no. um, maybe this is one of the movies that developed that trope. Uh, who knows, but it has a, a great scene. Yeah. Um, uh, and also, yeah, like I said, uh, great, um, sense of humor. There's, there's one thing that's early in the movie, there's been another murder and there's just a series of close-ups on like regular, like passersby mm-hmm. uh, people, just regular, like city folk learning the news and their, <laughs> their facial reactions get like more and more comical, yeah. but it's like, this is still about a, a murder. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, and then there's, there's some really fun, um, uh, camera, camera tricks, um, which is something we saw a lot of, I think in late silent film, yeah. you know, def- definitely with FW Murnau, but there's a bunch of other stuff like that. Yeah. Um, before we kind of had to start over when sound came in and suddenly the camera had to be locked down again. Um, but it's, here, it's a film that is, we talk about it a lot in, when we talk about Hitchcock, that's usually when people arrive there, but like, we should also talk about it as a really solid example of what silent film could be like right before sound showed up. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, cause yeah, it's 27. Yeah. yeah. It's a really, there's a nice fluidity to it. And I think it's a really wonderful film. Yeah. Uh, there's a, there's a part, um, a really cool idea, um, that I think is really well done and criterion's transfer on this looks mm. fantastic. Um, where Daisy and blowhard, I forget his name. Yeah. Uh, are in the kitchen and they can hear, uh, creepo pacing yeah. back and forth in his room and the camera like looks up and he does a, uh, a, a, a camera trick where he's shooting through he, but he's, he's double exposing or whatever. Yeah. Um, so you're still seeing kind of the ceiling, but then he's also shooting through like a glass floor. So you're seeing him like yeah. they're imagining him walking back and forth, uh, uh, you know, on the ceiling or on the floor above them. And you're seeing it, uh, as they're imagining it. It's yeah. really, really cool. Anyway, um, so that's the first of uh, three Criterion discs I'm going to be talking about today. <laughs> um, okay, real quick, because you were talking about like the idea of like murder, but it's also kind of funny. I was re-listening to the wonderful Onion podcast, A Very Fatal Murder, okay. today, and there was a line in there that I think you would appreciate a great deal. Okay, where. Um, I liked it so much that I, cause I had forgotten it. I liked it so much. That I texted it to Jason, um, which is, uh, an unsolved murder. <laughs> an unsolved murder is a lot like uh, a high school theater warm up game. There's a lot of finger pointing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's I a like lot this. Of, yeah. yeah. I like the specific. Okay. References. So, um, all right, next for me is a film you have seen, Corey Finley's Thoroughbreds. Oh, yes. Um, Formerly known as Thoroughbred. Yes. <laughs> when yes. it played at Sundance, it was Thoroughbred. Yeah. But by the time you and I, you or I got around to seeing it, it had uh, 
doubled at least. It's like the more. bicycle thief, which yeah. they realize like, oh, we got the translation wrong. It's thoroughbreds. Oh, see, I was thinking it was like the dinosaurs in Jurassic Park had learned how to <laughs> multiply. <laughs> the thoroughs are breading. Okay. Star, so yeah, thoroughbreds starring the witch and the dying girl. Uh, <laughs> oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. I, I wasn't really familiar, uh, with, with that actress. I've not seen, uh, me and, Earl, uh, me and you and everyone, we dying girl. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and Anton, uh, Yelchin's last performance. Um, yeah. And a really good one. Uh, I'll talk about him first. Uh, when I think of him as, as an actor, I think of him as a guy who actually is often very controlled, like very dialed in, and usually uh, maybe because those big puppy dog eyes of his, like yeah. often very innocent. Uh, but his character here is there's a very specific type of cadence that he adopts that I think works really well. And the character is just kind of a loser, but he's a dreamer and he's a scumbag, but I'm still kind of rooting for him. Like, uh, I also like that in the the movie, the the movie is technically like a crime film, Yeah, but he's the only one who feels like he's from that genre. He's like the the movie's connection to like the low life schemer type of, yeah. And so yeah, I, I liked him quite a bit. Um, and then I also, uh, you've not watched, uh, um, boardwalk empire, correct? No, I've never seen it. Okay. Cause the actor who plays the stepfather, Paul Sparks, Paul Sparks yeah. is, uh, he plays a character in, uh, boardwalk empire and uh, night and day performances. I actually like him. A, I, I, really love him in thoroughbreds because it's such a great example of him. Like, yeah, he's like really douchey. Um, but there comes a moment when he is like digging into, uh, Taylor Taylor joy. And a lot of what he is saying is probably true. And, and yeah, it's kind of assholeish for like a stepfather to say that to, to his stepdaughter. But at the same time, like it's, it really humanizes that character. Uh, and it makes us realize just how it's like, Oh yeah, I guess I can't really root for anybody here. Can I? Because he's not physically abusive. He's not sexually abusive. I think it's arguable whether he's even really verbally abusive. I think he's just, passive aggressive and as she said he makes her feel a certain way and i yeah. think that's a very definite thing and i think he's a, i mean i've uh, you know my my parents stayed together until my mm. dad, dad had never had like a step whatever situation but he right. does seem like the type who the type of least movie or tv character who married a woman that he you know that he that, that he loves yeah. but she happened to have a kid that yeah. he would rather not be around yeah yeah, um, yeah uh, he seems to have very little patience for her existence in a way. But I do like that. I do. I mean, I appreciate the film's restraint all around, but I think the restraint in having that character not be an absolute monster who we want to see die, um, you know, and that we're rooting for these yeah. girls to kill him. Um, but I do think that uh, the two lead performances are marvelous. The way that they feed into each other, but and they they're so similar 
as far as like the way they operate and the way they think, but the performances are so different. Like they both character feel, both characters feel completely unique and they have their own, their own motivations and their own feelings or lack thereof. Um, so, and, and I just loved their back and forth. I could watch it, you know, all day long. Well, yeah. I mean, it'd be a little bit depressing after a while, but, <laughs> yeah. uh, I also think it's a beautifully shot film. I yeah. love the music. The music is awesome. Like it really, uh, like um, from the word go, it like, I was like, I'm uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, but um, yeah, it's, I really, really my favorite, loved it. Um, real quick about Paul Sparks. Cause no, I haven't seen Boardwalk Empire, but I did watch the HBO miniseries the night of, oh, which, okay. which he's on, uh, playing kind of a similar character, like a jerky guy who's not, he, he's almost like you want him to be more of a villain than he is. Yeah. He's, he's not a villain. He just is a jerk. <laughs> and that's kind of who he is on the night of, um, on boardwalk empire. His character reminds me a lot of Steven Tobolowsky's character in Deadwood. Where you're like, how is this man not dead? How is everybody dead? But this guy is allowed to be alive. Yeah. It's crazy. Um, but yeah, my favorite, uh, my, my favorite scene, absolutely. My favorite scene in thoroughbreds doesn't even have, either of the two uh, young women in it. It's a theme. It's a, it's a, it's a sort of silent scene between Paul Sparks and the suggestion of Anton Yelchin when the floodlights in the yeah. yard keep going off oh. and Paul Sparks is walking around and it's, yeah, it's so beautiful. Um, and it's so suggestive. Um, and it's, it's weirdly tense. I mean, uh, how appropriate so, that yeah. we just talked about the lodger. Like it's, there is a, ver- I wouldn't say the film is Hitchcockian. It doesn't feel like that, but it definitely is in that tradition, both because it's kind of funny. Yeah. It's dark as hell and sequences like that where and it has kind of a strangers on the train, on the yeah, train type of yeah, premise. Kind of, kind of. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, I was very happy that I, that I saw it. All right, moving on to another uh, Blu-ray that you can buy. This is uh, I saw uh, watched Robert Bresson's final film, L'Argent, which apparently just means money. I guess. All right. Um, it's based on a Tolstoy story. Um, the premise of which is that a um, uh, we are introduced to two characters who come into young young men who come into uh, possession of a forged five hundred franc bill or mm-hmm. note or whatever the word is, and they go and spend it, and then uh, the shop sort of realizes what they they have. They try to pawn it off somebody else. Somebody else gets in trouble. So the first act is just kind of um, like. Bresson's Ohazar Balthazar in miniature is just following a bill around as it touches all these people's lives. Mm, okay. But that does not, after that it stays with this character becomes an ensemble piece in which we see the fallout among different people. Um, I'm a big fan of Robert Bresson, especially his later stuff like the devil probably and four nights of a dreamer. So I was expecting to like this more than I did. I think, um, uh, formalistically, I still love what he, what he does. He's so um, he, he's so rigid um, in the in the way that he um, moves or doesn't move or places the camera. The way that the sort of lines of walls and windows and doors tend to line up, and doors are a big um, motif in this in this particular movie. Um, not so much as what we usually think of doors as like a passageway, but more as something that can be shut, that can be locked, something that can mm-hmm. keep people apart or keep people locked up. You know, uh, we eventually get to prison uh, at one point. Um, but I think as a story, it feels like it's, 
laying it on a little thick in terms of, um, okay. I think you've read this book and I'm going to, this is going to be sacrilegious, but there's a classic book that I've never really loved okay. called the jungle by Upton Sinclair. Uh, I've actually not read it. Okay. It, it, that, that book, I very much agree with its purpose to sure. show like how, uh, incredibly oppressively horrifically difficult things were for poor, especially poor immigrants and, you know, continued to be in many ways, but at the time that the book was written, but as a story, I always felt like the jungle was like, well, you just took a list of every awful thing that could happen to someone in this situation and made it all happen to one guy. Yeah. And I kind of feel like this is like, um, it's like a terrible forest gump. Um, yeah, exactly. Uh, and Largent, I kind of felt is a similar way, which I, I appreciate what it's trying to say in the way that, um, certain people due to their, um, class or economic standing are given more of the benefit of the doubt when they come into contact with the law Mm -hmm. and other people are one bad break away from having to turn to crime as their only, as their only option. And I think it, it makes that, uh, dialectically it just makes that point a little too, uh, sternly. And I, it, it feels, um, more like it's, um, like it's, like it's, uh, giving me a lecture than it is telling a story. Mm-hmm. But, um, it's still, uh, impeccably made. It comes in at under 90, under 90 minutes, which is always great. Um, and if you just watch it as a crime film on its own, um, it's, uh, it's, it's pretty good. It also gets, pretty salacious for how high-minded the movie itself is yeah. it ends up being a, a a much bloodier movie at least in suggestion and there's some blood on screen too uh than i was expecting based on where it started mm-hmm. but um as a brisson fan it's not uh not my favorite all right so i saw uh the last film uh that we were going to watch for the class that i was in which i was uh TAing for um is Aurora Guerrero's Mosquita y Mari. Um, it, is, it came out in 2012. Uh, very small, uh, independent film. It means mosquitoes in the ocean? Uh, Mari is the name of a character, and oh. then Mosquita is the nickname of another character. Oh, okay. um, and it is about these two uh, 15-year-old girls living in Los Angeles in a predominantly um, Latino neighborhood mm-hmm. and one uh, uh, mosquito whose name is actually Yolanda. Um, she has these two, she it's just her and her parents. She's a great student. She's kind of a nerd. Uh, she's got big plans for college and all that sort of thing. And then across the street, this girl, Mari, I think just moved in and it's her, her mother, and I think, uh, a sibling. I don't recall exactly, but, um, and they get paired up in a, in a class because they're short uh, a textbook when Mari uh, comes in Mm -hmm. and Yolanda wants to like make a go of it and, uh, and get to know Mari. Mari wants none of it. And then slowly but surely over the course of the film, they become friends. And then it is more than suggested that, uh, they are becoming more than friends. Mm -hmm. Um, but it doesn't, this is going to sound weird. They don't, it doesn't go much beyond, more than suggesting like, okay, there is like really only one scene in which they're like lying down together, like in a platonic way. And then things very slowly start to take a turn. And then somebody walks in Hmm. and that's it. 
Uh, and then at, at one point, both of them uh, are with uh, guys and seem to be somewhat interested in them. So it really, I mean, it's a full on, it's a coming of age film. It's a relationship film. It's a friendship film. Uh, and it's a community film because there are times when we see this whole story from the perspective of the parents Mm. and it really is, uh, I would put it up there with moonlight as far as the idea of seeing this very specific story of somebody discovering their sexuality, uh, within a very specific community that I am not familiar with. Um, or at least I wasn't raised in. And so, but this film is so subtle. I mean, it's that, okay. An argument could be made that these characters go on to have boyfriends husbands, children, and they're not, they're not upset. And Mm -hmm. they're, they're actually not even denying themselves that like, this is not even necessarily a phase, but it's just like, we're growing closer and this happened. And then we just went our separate ways and did our own thing. Um, right. They were figuring it out and then they figured it out. Exactly. And And it could have gone one way or another. Mm -hmm. And it's, and that's how subtle it is. And it's, it's, kind of great it's kind of amazing it's in that awesome. um i i highly recommend it great performances all around uh and just totally and it's it's funny in a lot of instances it's heartbreaking in a lot of instances Do you know where it's available i don't uh you watched it school. Yeah, yeah yeah i think my instructor uh had a copy and so we watched his copy and and it's uh i really i don't know if the students really liked it um but I want. I wanted to say like, "Hey, this is a real treasure." This film, <laughs> like, you guys really should appreciate this. So anyway, yeah. uh, Mosquito Yamari, uh, check it out. All right. Uh, finally, for me um, today, uh, third and final criterion for today. Um, okay. I watched. Oh my god! I watched the movie that I loved so much. Okay. A 1951 French uh, comedy called La Poison. Okay. Um, now, okay. what is that? I don't speak French. What is that? <laughs> it's poison. Got it. Uh, Tyler, this movie is so much fun. Okay. And such a dark, it's a very dark comedy. Basically, well, here's, first off, let me talk about how the movie starts, which is something I've never seen before and I think is the coolest thing. It starts, no story, it starts with the director going around and introducing and personally thanking every member of the cast and crew. (laughs) And then the movie starts. It's, it's. When when was the movie made? 1951. It's so delightful. Um, uh, like he's t- he, he's like, oh, this is our production designer, and she's sitting in the in the uh, the prison set that she built for us. It's so wonderful. I can't wait to work with you again. <laughs> and he just does that for everyone. <laughs> it's so great. Um, anyway, uh, then once he gets to the story, all right, it takes place in a in a small town. There's a couple. Um, they're they're in their early fifties. They've been married uh, thirty years, and they hate each other. Okay. Um, you know. Uh, he spends all day away from the house, mostly bending other people's ears about how much he hates his wife. She spends all day drinking. Um, <laughs> and when they get home, when he, when they have dinner at the end of the night, uh, any words between them are immediate arguments. Um, so, uh, what they do instead is they just listen to the radio while they eat. And then, um, at one point they're listening to the radio and they hear an interview with a, a lawyer in Paris who's famous for getting, uh, people charged of murder acquitted and this gives the husband an idea and unbeknownst to him 
the wife may have already had that idea. Yeah. Um, and so then it becomes a, it's like, it becomes like one of those, you know, those, um, British like village, uh, comedies, like, oh, yes, Englishman yes. One, but you know, Got it. uh, saving grace, those kind of waking yeah. that divine, I guess, um, is in that, um, at least type, uh, it becomes one of those, except it's about <laughs> two people trying to murder each other. One of the, I don't want to give away where the story goes. One of them uh, may succeed in murdering the other. Um, and it's it's so like lighthearted, but also in a very cynical way that I think I almost wonder if the opening bit was supposed to just put you in such a good mood. I did have that thought because yes. the movie is so cynical. Yeah. Um, but with a smile on its face the entire time. I, I I really, really loved this movie. I gotta say, I feel like whatever radio program decided to interview that lawyer was very irresponsible. Oh, that actually comes up. <laughs> oh, really? Um, yeah. The, uh, a, a judge, like we see, because we also, because that, that lawyer is also a character that we see, um, and a judge kind of, not, not the radio program, but kind of a judge kind of scolds him hmm. for, um, for, for the, the things he said and the way that he presented uh, himself man this filmmaker thought of everything <laughs> yeah um uh, yeah really really awesome movie also under 90 minutes which again can't go wrong yeah um uh i'm gonna make a point i think on the movie journal as i always have of anytime a movie is under 90 minutes i'm gonna make sure to point that out indeed because uh, it's more more movies should be gringo should have been under 90 minutes okay it was like a solid uh like hour 45 okay but um okay so last for me is Ava DuVernay's A Wrinkle in Time, which, uh, okay, there's a lot that I loved about it, and a lot that I liked about it, and very little that I did not care for. Um, It's tough, though, because the stuff that got me was thematic stuff that definitely spoke to me where I am right now uh, in my life, and... And I mean, it brought a tear to my eye, um, and I just really appreciated it on that level. Um, but you know, so on one hand, part of me is just like, eh, it feels like it's, it feels like I, I'm, it's cheating or something like that because you know, it's 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 talking to me where I am right now. But then I thought, like, well, it's entirely possible that everybody is there in their own way and the film can be can have a a universal quality to uh its themes and its message but i also like how specific it is to these characters um and i think visually uh ava duvernay does a a very good job of just creating these uh very strange landscapes i would have liked to see more of them and it's it i i haven't read the book but i wouldn't be surprised if there was a little bit more exploring um and a bit more to use this overused phrase world building before like we arrive where we want to arrive um but you know i can i i found myself as i walked into the movie i was just like Oh, I bet this movie's super long. Like I went to a 1050 show last night and I was like, hi, oh, I bet this movie's long. And as I, as the movie was about to start, I looked up the running time and it was like 109 minutes. And I thought, yeah. all right, yeah. that's very rare. I feel like even for kids movies these days, maybe especially. Um, but, uh, 
but yeah, so visually I enjoyed it. I thought she had a pretty good handle on the special effects. I really liked all of the acting, especially, and I wrote down the name here, Derek McCage, who That's plays Charles, Charles Wallace, Wallace. Yeah. who, by the way, I love that that is his name yeah. and that they just, they his name is Charles Wallace, which is just, <laughs> and he's got this little sweater vest that just feels right. Yeah. Uh, he's great. Yeah. Like he really up. I mean, there comes a moment where just up until a certain moment, he's just very good. Mm -hmm. And then a change happens and he is everything he needs to be at that moment. And he is as a and that moment needs to be as effective as possible. It needs to make the audience uncomfortable and it does. And it is hinged so much on his performance. Uh, and I think he, he hits it out of the park that, and the very disturbing image of Michael Pena there towards the end. Yeah. Um, that's the stuff that I, I mean, yes, I definitely thematically, I liked it, but I think the stuff that really got to me was, um, the stuff I remember from kids movies when I was a kid, which is like some heavy, scary stuff. Yeah. Like, I, I like the heaviest, like with the, the, um, the bullying at the beginning is not like, uh, you know, boilerplate uh bullying it's very specific and very harsh um, and it felt very real and then yeah when you get into some of the scarier stuff especially with michael pena's character yeah um that felt like old school like we're not we're not afraid to traumatize some kids a little bit here and the the suburbs like it's such a great image and i think so wonderfully conceived um and it just made me because yeah it was like the kids movies when we were younger and a lot of kids books. Like, I don't, I don't remember if you read the phantom toll booth, but there's a lot of this type of thing. No, you, um, uh, you and my wife have something in common. Okay. In which you both accuse me of never reading, watching, listening to whatever things that you recommend. Do I accuse you yes, of that? Accuse me. Of, what do I say? Uh, I think this is going years back. Oh, but okay. I think you, you have a tendency, I think, which is a very friendly tendency among people to be like, uh, oh, I have this movie. You should borrow it. I think you'd like it. Yes. You stopped doing that to me years ago. <laughs> yes. Because I never yes. watched them. Because I forget and, that you're completely unreceptive. Uh, yeah, see, you, you do feel this. This is my wife feels the same way. <laughs> so, yeah, you, I think, uh, back when we lived together in Chicago, you um, told me I should read The Phantom Toll Booth Indeed. more than once. And I never did. Well, I'd, I'd like you to read it just the once, I guess. Um, I know what you mean. But I did read uh, Catch-22, I think, because uh, okay, yeah, that's uh, of a good you. One. And also, I, uh, the only um, Dashiell Hammond I've read, which was The Maltese Falcon, didn't go okay. too deep, but uh, yeah. because, of, because of you. So I, the, I feel like this is what I would say to my wife. You guys cherry-pick all the examples that I, where I do ignore your recommendations and forget all the <laughs> right. ones. Sorry. So there's those two. And, uh, (laughs) that was just books. No. And here's the other thing is that like, I do, I'll say this. I hope that I don't adopt the attitude of like, like, Oh, you ever read that? Like that's, I I try not to to do that anymore. Um, I'd call you on it. But, uh, but yeah, one of the things that I like about the phantom toll booth and one of the things that I thought they may, Chuck Jones made it into an animated film, uh, in the seventies and it's a perfectly fine film, but I think like, not unlike the thief of always or something mm-hmm. like that. You make a live action version of this with like the right 
director and everything that it could be disturbing at times. Yeah. Um, there's like, there's a, a character in Phantom Tollbooth. So our, our characters need to get to a specific place and they run across these various demons, but the demons are just, they're so specific. And so there's this one character simply known as the terrible trivium. And he's this very, he's skinny and he's in this nice suit and a bowler hat and a little umbrella and he has no face. Um, yeah. and his whole thing is, and he's very friendly and he says, I need some help. I need to move this big pile of sand from here over to here. I'm sorry. All I have are these tweezers and just, but they, he's so nice about it that yeah. they're like, well, all right, let's do it. And he goes, now I also have this giant puddle here that I need to go from there to there. Here's an eyedropper. <laughs> and the idea is he gets, he gets them all out of obligation. He gets them all wrapped up in doing these ridiculous, useless tasks so they don't get where they need to go. Uh, but the image of, of that, like, cause the, the book was partially illustrated. And when I turned the page, I was like, Oh boy, just this faceless, uh, British gentleman, uh, really got to me. Weird. Uh, okay. You mentioned sand. In mm-hmm. Tollbooth. There's a thing in Wrinkle in Time of the Food tasting like sand. Yeah, that's and a good then, sequence. Yeah. Uh, and then Thief of Always also has like someone who, I don't, it's not necessarily sand, but someone, uh, a character like did, crumbles into dust, yes. I guess, in a sandy type of way. What, that, what, what does that have to do with scary kids' literature? I think it's just, a, it's a perfect visualization of of like ash or mm-hmm. or just something not being solid something right. uh being something there's a lot of and yet it's nothing yes that's a great that's a great way of putting it but um anyway so yeah there are a lot of elements to a wrinkle in time that i really liked and it was uh it was something that really moved me uh on a lot of uh levels and i was i haven't looked at any of the negative reviews uh i guess i I don't know what people's criticism is of it. I haven't read very many of them either. But to me, I think it's not merely serviceable, but I I can't, I don't know who would have a problem with it or why. Who was your favorite of the misses? Um, it's tough. I like Mindy Kaling a lot. Okay. Um, Reese Witherspoon was fun. That's uh, I said last week. I'm, Team, team, what's it? Yeah. It's um, it goes. Especially because there's, I think hers is probably, she's probably the most developed um, because you see that she is annoyed by these characters, mm-hmm. but also has tremendous affection for them uh, to the point where, I mean, it, the, the part that brought a tear to my eye, I tweeted it out where there's a, a moment where she says, simply says, uh, you know, such beautiful faults. Mm-hmm. And I was like, ha oh, okay. All right. Uh, um, yeah. and it, uh, yeah, I, I'm, I really enjoyed it. Yeah. Mindy Kaling also has a, uh, a very, a small physical moment that really made me laugh that I don't want to give away too much, but okay. it's Zach Galifianakis getting them ready for their thing. <laughs> yeah. Do you know even the joke, the joke yeah. I'm talking about? Yeah. It's a funny, I enjoyed funny him moment. as well. I yeah. thought he did a good job. Yeah. All right, uh, let's move on to television. I think we're right. starting on the, on this one too. You got more than I do. Okay. So I watched, uh, the last half of season one or whatever you want to call it of the tick, Mm. uh, on Amazon. And it's really, it's a very well conceived show. Um, from a, 
from a story standpoint, from a character standpoint, um, it's every bit as absurd as the tick needs to be. It's a little bit darker than the cartoon was, but the car, the, the comics definitely had a dark quality to them. But, uh, the one issue that I have is that I think by far the least compelling character is the tick. Mm-hmm. Now I'm perfectly okay with shifting to making Arthur the lead. That makes sense. He's, you know, he's, you know, what is it? Uh, on the old live action tick series, the tick said to Arthur, like you're on a first name basis with lucidity. I have to call him Mr. Lucidity. <laughs> and, um, and it's that. So, and, and the way that, uh, Griffin Newman plays him and the way the character is written, like there's, he has a long way to go. He does not have a lot of faith in himself. Other people don't either. And so he's learning to be not merely a superhero, but a functional human being. So like, okay, there's a lot going on there, but then there's a lot of really interesting side characters, including villains. And, you know, the tick doesn't change. That's one of the things about him. And so that's fine. And I think Peter, Peter Serafinowicz does a fine job with the, with the performance, but somehow it just needs to be, I think, bigger or more prominent. I can't quite figure it out, but, uh, the show is very good. And in the last episode, Arthur has a moment that is so effective, uh, that I was like, and, and I laugh throughout and I think Jackie Earl Haley is wonderful as the terror. Uh, there's a, there's a lot of great stuff there, but, uh, but I can't compared to our friend Townsend Coleman or Patrick Warburton. Um, mm-hmm. I don't think it's Peter Serafinowicz's fault. I just think that I, for whatever reason, I just don't think they're writing the character just right. Um, he needs to be larger than life and just loom over everything. And this character does not. And that is a bummer. All right. Um, for, for me, um, the only TV show I have to talk about, I finally finished watching the most recent season of Curb Your Enthusiasm. Okay. Aired, I was looking up the air dates. Uh, so this finished up last December. Um, I'm just not getting around to, to finishing it. It took me a while. I think, did you watch this whole season? No, I watched the first few episodes, but then okay. I, I fell off. I think there's a lot of really funny stuff mm-hmm. this season. I think the show has been in a place before where it's sort of consistently not funny. And here I think it's, I feel like this happens with a lot of shows where like they're really good and they go through a down patch right? and then they come back in a way or bands sometimes do this too. They come back in a way where it's like, your first instinct is like, oh, it's back. But then you realize, no, it's just better than it was right. last season, but it will never be what it was again. I feel like that's kind of where Kirby Enthusiasm was this year. Because um, it, it was episode to episode consistently very funny. Mm-hmm. Um, especially the last couple episodes uh, with um, Lin-Manuel Miranda, who um, proved to be uh, like, I mean, so many of the people on curb or on extras or on whatever there's a million shows uh, or or things like this where it's like i'm a celebrity that is generally thought of as a fun nice guy i'm gonna play a, a douchebag version to myself yeah uh it, it I, like there was a time maybe during extras when that kind of got i kind of got sick of that yeah um but Lynn manuel miranda does it uh, i think uh, very uh very well uh and is very game i think um, did you ever watch the last episode of uh, the Larry Sanders show? No, no. It's uh, 
there's a sequence that I love because that that show did it a lot as well, um, where um, they're in the green room and Tom Petty is like thrashing about and yelling at people. And Greg Kinnear is also there. And he goes, (laughs) he goes, he goes, hey, hey, take it easy. And Tom Petty just like gives him this look. He's like, was I talking to you? And then, <laughs> and then Greg Kinnear like steps up and gets like this close and goes, well, you are now. And like, they just, it just immediately like an action movie just bursts out in the middle oh, of this ridiculous great. thing. Yeah. <laughs> it, I feel like the only acting I remember from Tom Petty outside of his music videos is, uh, his role in the postman, which I don't remember him being very good. Uh, uh, the postman. I don't think I ever saw the postman. So, but uh, you know, the, the, the movie implies that he is playing Tom Petty. Oh, okay. In this post-apocalyptic future. That's kind of awesome. I like that. He's playing, he's essentially playing because the world has fallen apart. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's playing a, like a ferryman, especially except instead of a ferry, he owns a hot air balloon and he takes people across the valley. And, Neat. And so there's a part that Kevin Costner needs to get some people across the valley. And Kevin Costner is from when before, the world fell apart. The before times. Um, yeah, yeah, the long, long ago. Um, uh, and he, so there's, when he meets Tom Petty, there's a moment where he's like, hey, aren't you? And Tom Petty's like, yeah. And that's, <laughs> that's all that's referenced. But the implication to me is that he's playing Tom Petty. Okay. <laughs> it sounds to me, between what you and I think, was it Pat Healy? Like, someone a long time ago was talking about how this is kind of the most interesting bad movie they've ever seen. Yeah. And I, I, I'm starting to think I might need to see the Postman. Yeah, I think you got to see the Postman, even um, though it has I uh, know. The, the guy you don't like in it. <laughs> uh, Will Patton. I'm sure he's a remarkably adequate villain. Uh, but okay, let's get back to Kirby. Yeah. Uh, yeah uh, very funny. I could just like list funny stuff. Um, well, you, if you watch the early episodes, you might've seen the funniest line of the season. Okay. When Susie, has adopted like a little sister program type of thing. Yes. And she's showing a video of this girl singing at her talent show <laughs> to Larry. And she says, um, Oh, I can't remember what Susie's daughter's name is. I, I don't recall. No. It, it also starts with a, with an S it's like, uh, it's a silly name, right? Yeah. Or yeah. something like that. Uh, I, I can't know. Let's recall. Say it's summer. It's not summer. Let's yeah. say it is. And she goes, you watch this video. You think summer was talented at her age? And Larry David goes, no, I don't. <laughs> Um, anyway so yeah i can name funny stuff that happened um all day long uh but i do have a bit of an issue with this season as compared to peak uh peak uh curbing enthusiasm sure right whereas i feel like when the show's on sammy uh sammy yes That's- okay so i was close with summer but it's yeah. sammy um now i don't want to imply that larry david has ever been will, uh, interested in apologizing for being filthy rich. He's not apologizing for anything right. ever, but to me, a lot of the best comedy has come from kind of not poking fun, but kind of living in this bubble of being super rich yeah. and all of the things that are serious to them in terms of like social expectations or, you know, obligations as a famous person or whatever, yeah. getting comedy out of that and staying within that world has made it funny. I feel like there was a trend this season of Larry interacting with people in the service industry or mm. like, uh, I mean, even though it was the first episode or, or not the first episode, but early episode where, uh, uh, what's his, what's his name? Um, 
what is his name? Uh, who played the the hotel manager? I'm not sure if you remember. Oh, um, I don't recall, but yeah. Uh, and then you had like the um, the maintenance guy at his office building, and you had like the bus driver, and even later you get into like Stephen Weber's character is playing a very specific rich guy version of a service industry character, where he's a guy, he's an oyster guy that people hire to serve oysters at their party, and all he does is like shuck oysters and serve them and like offer different like condiments for your oysters. <laughs> but yeah. it's still like weird. Like so much of it is about him interacting with people, uh, who aren't, uh, um, on the same economic socioeconomic level as yeah. him. And it, some of it struck a sour note to me. I have <laughs> to be honest. Some of, some of it, I think, I think with the bus driver, the joke is on Larry. Okay. I'm not sure if you got to that. I don't it's think just so. one scene one of, but it's very, um, just Larry David, like suddenly realizes he has to be somewhere. And the only option to him is to jump on the big blue bus, which is, goes through a uh, Culver city in Santa Monica. Um, and he's so, so out of his element yeah. that he almost immediately gets, gets thrown off at the next stop <laughs> because he's like, he makes chaos out of, out of everything just by his being on this bus. Yeah. I feel like in that one, the joke is on him, but like, yeah, like the, 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 um, the, the, the maintenance guy at the building who like the joke is that he wants too many favors from Larry. Like that seems weird. Uh, or even like the first episode was about, um, an assistant, um, yeah. played by, um, the Carrie Brownstein. Yeah. Um, uh, even though Jimmy Kimmel was very funny as himself in that, in that yeah. episode, uh, it did. Anyway, you've only seen a few, so you can't really comment on it, I guess. But uh, if I, you finish it, keep that in mind. It seems, okay. it seems like a weird turn for the show. Okay. Yeah, I can I can imagine that. Like a big, I think a big part of the show being funny is that pretty much everyone up until this point, pretty much everyone he's come in contact with is of a certain yeah. level and. There, but within that, they're looking for some type of moral respectability or whatever, yeah. or like social respectability. And so they take themselves very seriously. And then he just doesn't agree that it's quite so serious. But this is, this sounds like a different thing. Yeah. And maybe that's why I liked the last couple of episodes with the Lynn Manuel, Lynn Manuel Miranda sort of mini arc in the last two episodes because it was a turn to that sort of like battle of two petty egoists, yeah. you know, and F. Murray Abraham shows in the last episode and is great as himself, as, as himself. Nice. Yes. Do you, well, you know, he's making the whole premise of the, yes. the whole season is, is that's right. Yes. A musical of Fatwa and he wanted to play the Ayatollah, but yeah. that didn't happen. So F. Murray Abraham ends up playing the Ayatollah. I <laughs> could see it. <laughs> yeah. It's very funny. Uh, all right. All right. Uh, so last for me is, sur- is a survivor. Uh, the season is shaping up. I got to say, um, okay. They haven't pulled any bullshit yet. What? They haven't pulled any bullshit yet. I know you're on guard. I am on guard. Yes. Uh, But I think, and they still could, you never know. Um, They did swap the tribes a little early, um, which is always frustrating, but it's also interesting at the same time. And it doesn't favor any one person. That's when it becomes an issue. Um, I can deal with almost any kind of survivor bullshit as long as everyone has an equal chance of benefiting or being hurt by it. Um, But yeah, uh, what I like is that there are... I was I was underwhelmed by this cast. I thought that uh, there were maybe like one or two interesting people, but everyone else is just kind of forgettable. But as sometimes happens, 
around the third or fourth episode, that's when people really start to emerge. Um, just like big personalities or good players or whatever. Um, and there was, there was a, a play in the, in the, uh, tribal council with, uh, one of the, uh, immunity idols that th- this character. Okay. He's not a character. Sorry. He's a person. He's a real person. He's a real boy. He's a, what is it? I'm a, I'm, I'm a normal person. I'm, regular, right. I'm a regular, regular person. person. Um, so, uh, the rest in peace, Maury Chaikin. Indeed. Lifeless ordinary. So, uh, to give a little bit of background. So this is ghost Island where they, uh, where people get a chance to quote unquote, you know, uh, break the curse or whatever that reverse the curse. That's it. Something is some bullshit. Uh, but they get, they get like idols and various things from past seasons, uh, when somebody did not use it correctly. So notoriously in season 15, uh, there's this guy named James who had two immunity, immunity idols. And he was in like the last, the final seven and got voted out with both yeah. of them in his pocket. And Wait, you told the story last week. Did I? Okay. Okay. Oh, okay. So here's the thing. So this guy, I found one of them Mm -hmm. and, but everybody at tribal council, they all know the story of James, which I know sounds biblical, but, um, they all know that. And so this guy is on the outs. Uh, it's him and it's, it's basically five to four. And so he's like, he, he's, he needs to make people flip. So he goes, so he's telling his try his alliance, like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to pull this out and I'm going to say that I'm playing it. And Jen and I are both like, who gives a shit? Like whatever. That's one person. Mm-hmm. Then it's just about them trying to figure out who you're probably going to play it for, which will be you. Uh, and so he does this thing where he pulls out the idol and it's very distinct. Like everybody who knows survivor knows what that, what that idol is from. And he said, this is the idol that, uh, James did not play. You might recall that he had, two idols and and so he then he pulls out like the paperwork that says what it is he just says he goes this is the paperwork i don't have time to read it but i'll just go ahead and say that this counts as double this counts for me and one other person which is he just made that up but it's a good lie because there were james went out with two idols so like he could make the argument that this idol counts for two and it was a complete lie and it didn't necessarily work but I like that. I like mm-hmm. that kind of uh, that kind of thinking. So, all right, this car alarm's going off and it's killing me. So let's right. be done. This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet. 